I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Good evening and welcome to the London Review Bookshop. It's a real pleasure to welcome uh, Amber Hussain and Rebecca May Johnson. Amber's an essayist and critic, the author of Replace Me, which came out in 2021, and the book we're here to celebrate tonight, Meet Love, An Ideology of the Flesh, uh, just out from Mac Books. She'll be in conversation with Rebecca May Johnson, author of Small Fires, which came out last year from Pushkin and was launched with a raucous event in this, uh, in this very establishment. Um, and they'll be talking for about 45 minutes, following which there'll be 15 minutes for questions from the floor with the roving mic. Uh, so just raise your hand at the end for questions. Um, the fire doors, uh, the two doors here and here, so just leave by those in the event of a fire and don't try anything fancy. If you've put your glass underneath your feet, uh, then don't kick it over when you stand up at the end. And please turn your phones off or to silent. And that wraps up my housekeeping bit. Welcome, welcome. Thank you so much. Um, I'm thrilled to be here um, to share this incredible, um, innovative uh, approach to thinking about food and meat and eating with you. And um, as it's a new book, um, just to kind of let the text lead the way, create the space of this event, um, Amber's going to begin with a reading. I you am. Like set yeah. it up for us. Thanks so much, Rebecca. Yeah, it's th and thanks to everyone at the bookshop uh, and to Mac for organising this. It's very exciting and overwhelming. Also to see this amazing display of books, all shrink-wrapped like slabs of meat. Um, <laughs> I feel like, yeah, feels like we're in a little butcher's shop. So yeah, I'm just gonna read a bit from the introduction to the book, not all of it, but just enough to kind of give you an idea of the, the general scope um, of what meat love is about. Um, so here we go, yeah. Can everyone hear me okay? Cool. Okay. Until I was 26 years old, I had never looked at a piece of meat. I had seen and eaten a lot of them. Countless roasted chicken legs sticky with wine, cured and ruptured sausages slickening spaghetti, spiced hunks of lamb in pools of orange oil, nuggets, rashers, burgers, schnitzels, skewers, steaks. The horse tartare I ingested at a Ukrainian restaurant in Poland did not strike me in its relation to a horse. Before my final effort to roast a plucked and headless bird, I cannot remember seeing any item as embodied or possessed as a chicken's leg, the leg of a lamb, pig's flesh, a cow's rump. All I remember witnessing is the juicy abstraction of meat. It was love that made me do it both the roasting and later the looking that would mean my final roast. Until I was 26, I had cooked and eaten for love of a meat-hungry boyfriend. 
I'd reassured my mother on losing too much weight by scraping hardened lamb fat from a cooled down plate and depositing it on my tongue. Mostly, I'd eaten for my own private love of meat itself. The easy delivery of flavor from a fatty, proteinous mass, the brilliant nostalgia held by scorch marks crackling and grease. It was also love, this time of a self-described vegan, that would eventually come to estrange me from these pleasures. Their influence helped to change, if not my mind, then at least my habits. Eventually, I ceased to think in terms of meat while deliberating dinner. Still, then, I felt that refusing meat was little more than a salve for the naively guilty consumer. The cruelty-free performances of middle-class urban individuals were, it seemed to me, an irrelevance from the perspective of any meaningful critique of our political order. For as long as our food was embedded in a system beholden to, to profit, driving the plunder of whatever land and life would produce the most favorable margins, for as long as that system foreclosed the equal distribution of what was produced, for as long as farmers and shoppers alike were dependent on wages to eat, for as long as all this was the case, I reasoned, animal meat would need to be bought and sold for the maintenance of human life. Yet to slide your buttery hand between the flesh and skin of a thing that if only for a moment you have relearnt to perceive as a corpse is to give an invigorating massage to your sense of political possibility. It is the kind of shock to sensory expectation that opens up more earnest consideration of alternatives to the society that produced that corpse and channeled it into your kitchen. This sensory politicization involves, I want to suggest, a particular kind of looking. The animals we've wanted to look at for much of post-industrial history have typically been those still living. In a 1977 essay asking, why look at animals? The artist, art critic, poet, and leftist activist and thinker John Berger took the practice of looking at animals to be related to the fact of meat, yet not exactly to coincide with it. Berger's paradigm site for the spectacle of commodified animality is not the pasture, abattoir, butcher's shop, or plate, though commodities do live there, but rather, and more obviously, the zoo. Yet nowhere in a zoo, he observes, can a stranger look at an animal. For ever since animals came to be used as industrial machines, treated as raw material for food and exhibited for human amusement, our view of them, Berger writes, has always been wrong. However close you might come to an animal's face, you are looking, quote, at something that has been rendered absolutely marginal, unquote. All the concentration you can muster, he concludes, will never be enough to centralize it. Once, that is, you have made something living into an object of one-sided encounter, you cannot expect it to present itself to you as something fascinating in its aliveness. Animals, to Berger's mind, were either commodified as meat or commodified as spectacles. His account did not accommodate any overlapping spectacle of meat, the existence of which would imply an outright embrace of death-dealing violence. At the zoo, we disavow the violence behind the spectacle of profit-driven life. With meat, we tend to ignore that the thing we are consuming was ever alive. Though perhaps morally negligent, 
neither way of seeing could be judged as irredeemably violent. Both acts of indirect aggression seemed corrigible, Berger thought, by the power of new ways of seeing. Perhaps if by treating animals as more than mere objects of our gaze, we began to truly look to centralize their subjectivity, we might also chip away at our tendency to reduce the animal to meat. It was 40 years after the publication of Berger's essay that I found myself looking at meat and finally seeing a carcass. Plucked, beheaded and fleshy, its rear end opened to my unwaxed lemon. Proximity to the disgust of someone you desire can radicalize the stomach. But two specific conditions other than love were central to my change of heart. First, the availability to middle-class Londoners like myself of viable alternatives to nourishment by meat. Second, immersion in a culture of ideas that posited meat as murder. More broadly, an era of climate catastrophe linked with a structurally sadistic system of factory farming has shrunk the space for disavowal in the sphere of public discourse. Among those with the luxury of choice, most are convinced of the cruelties of industrialized animal farming, such that the actual embrace of violence takes only relatively marginal forms. Some on the left perceive the inadequacy of consumer choice to transforming the entire food system. The most disenchanted are want to acknowledge their own disempowerment by eating the system's losers. Then there are others at the certain extremes of the political right who would simply defend an inalienable right to exploit, extract and consume. Yet it is only in the five years or so since I have been able to look at meat and witness its animal nature that I've also become conscious of a practice of looking that Berger did not foresee. Namely, the eminently contemporary middle-class tendency both to look at meat and relish its consumption. Indeed, it is a matter of looking all the better to eat, an enhancement of eating pleasure, both aesthetic and ethical in nature. From opulently packaged deliveries of plumped and marbled flesh to cookbooks filled with awful heavy installation art, the spectacle of the grass-fed, grass-fed, free-range, hand-reared, happy carcass has bled its proto-black pudding into the mass cultural sphere. The image of meat as honest, traditional, local, well-fed fare is now as much a face of supermarket chicken as rarefied urban butchery, the content of both television advertising and Instagram influencers. In looking at our meat, from its grain, color, bounciness and sheen, to the ground on which it was fattened and the horizon on which it once gazed, we suppose we can redeem the cruelty that the making of meat entails. This is a cruelty perceived as wrought either by some brute human nature, per the right wing, or the totalizing capitalist mode of production, per the melancholic left. Stored within the spectacle of ethical meat, is the suggestion of a source of redemption, namely love. This love invokes an ethic of care, respect, appreciation, and mourning for the animal lives we take into our mouths and the human lives involved in getting them there. Yet the political implications of honoring this love are more complex than perhaps they first seem. While it is basic that an attitude of love will make for better farming, processing, and selling of meat, the necessity of doing so at all remains a matter of ideological negotiation. Industrial meat farming, while comparatively horrific in its inbuilt degradation of animal life, 
has something fundamental in common with any form of sustainable or ethical meat farming. Beholden to the profit motive, both must culminate in killing for produce. The availability and popularity of lovingly raised and sustainably farmed kinds of meat has no scope to undermine the economic imperatives according to which industrial meat production swells. At its worst, then, the ideology of meat love can serve more as an elevation than a mitigation of violence, an insidious innovation through which both speciesism and capitalism are embedded in common sense. Those whom capitalist society has vested with the power to manage our relationship with meat are those with the greatest means of profiting from its consumption. Uh, I'm skipping a bit here. Uh, we are witness to a powerful aesthetic campaign of carnivorous interests, embellishing the image of meat with values of intelligence, kindness, and stewardship, albeit a stewardship that offers us increasingly catastrophic evidence of its returns. We are more or less likely to respond to this campaign according to various complexities, our politics perhaps, but constrained by the facts of material existence, the things that must be done to make money, build networks of kinship, and eat to survive. Millions visit the zoo, writes Berger, out of a curiosity which is both so large, so vague, and so personal that it is hard to express it in a single question. The same could be said of our modern fascination with the spectacle of meat. What follows is an attempt to distill the chaos of questions into one. Love has always been capable of meaning many things, among them a propensity to kill. If love is somehow newly compatible with meat, what kind of lovers have we become? Thank you, that was so wonderful. Um, I'm so interested in how you talk um, an approach that I haven't really heard before about meat to do with practices of looking. And um, your background as uh, somebody who studied classics and who's doing an art history PhD um, is really kind of um, a real kind of, um, is given a wonderful structuring principle to this book. Um, so I don't know, for those of you who haven't seen it yet, it's a really, you wouldn't necessarily see this coming as a book about veganism. Um, it's divided into sections about um, tragedy, harmony, and beauty, sort of drawing on literary models and, and art historical um, modes of thinking. Um, so yeah, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about um, why you decided to structure the book like that and, and how it's sort of serving your, your subject. Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, not the, not the most obvious headings for a meat book, I guess, but... Um, <laughs> I think what I was thinking about when I was trying to kind of grapple with the difficulties, or the, I guess the question of why meat, which I think, why meat is such a fraught and confusing subject, which I think probably most of us can agree it is. Yeah. Um, it wasn't that I started this project thinking like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to, look at this from a kind of art historical perspective. Um, it was more that I found that the kinds of questions that kept coming up as I kind of banged my head against the wall trying to work out what I thought and felt about meat was that these questions did not feel answerable, I guess, by the kind of um, 
the two ways that the question is normally approached, one of them being the sort of um, logic of moral philosophy, yeah. which can't answer questions like, you know, why is it that um, it can feel as kind of <laughs> guilt, guilt riddled, if that makes any sense, to uh, decide not to eat meat as a middle class person as it does to eat meat or like, you know, why, um, why is it that the kind of complexities of human class politics um, have become a kind of, um, have become a means of justifying creating an animal underclass, um, another example, or, 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 you know, why is it that we have so readily come to be able to talk about killing and loving in the same breath, like all of these mm. kind of weird things that mm. happen around me. Moral philosophy doesn't seem able to answer yeah. them, but also neither does the kind of um, utilitarian logic of um, some, you know, certain kinds mm. of ecological thinking. Mm. Um, and I guess the reason for that is because meat, meat consumption and meat production, the book talks about both of those things, are both extremely ideological yeah. the stories that we tell ourselves the ways that we justify whether we do or don't decide to you know engage in particular practices yeah um, but I guess we we encounter meat first as a sensual object don't we that we're staring at on our plate and I feel yeah, like exactly and, and the drama of that act of looking is something you really kind of bring bring to light in here yeah so this is yeah this is it I think when you start to think about ideology mm. it, I mean ideology is in a sense kind of like something that can be intellectualized and something that can be kind of reduced to sort of materialist mm. analysis but it is also a question of how we experience the world mm. and how we experience mm. meat and so much of that comes from how we're looking at it like um, you know how it is presented to us mm. how it's represented in popular culture in art, in advertising, yeah. in all of these things. And so it, yeah, the, the way that I ended up structuring the book, to go back to your question, is, um, yeah, in terms of these aesthetic categories of tragedy, harmony, and beauty, these are the things that surfaced after I spent a hideous period, just like immersed in the imagery of meat, like, just looking at loads of meat, watching horror films, just, it was, yeah, it was a nightmare, but... Um, it's quite an interesting challenge reading the book, actually, because you've got some amazing image rights mm. and trying to maintain the intellectual function while staring at sort of viscera is yeah. quite a kind of amazing challenge and kind of in a way gets to the heart of trying to think about eating meat and the kind of, the strangeness of it. Yeah, grateful to Mac for that. They did manage to get some incredible image yeah. permissions given uh, how some of the sources of those images are treated in the book. So that was very well yeah. done. And, and perhaps um, one of the best images is actually is one that you create through your writing um, in the chapter on tragedy, which I also uh, think really gets to the heart of the tragedy uh, chapter, um, where you're pitting Hugh, Fern you're characterizing Hugh Fernley Whittingstall as Clytemnestra <laughs> and the relationship between uh, killing uh, Agamemnon and and what happened the fate of his yeah. his produce and the kind of the way you bring thinking about tragedy and, and, and morality and the kind of complexity of those relationships is quite mm. amazing amazing um, I wonder if you could yeah share a bit about that pa that passage yeah it's really it's like a real um, I mean Hugh brings it on himself <laughs> 
Like, he stages himself as Clytemnestra. I don't think he realises he's doing it, but when I was watching River Cottage, Escape, Escape to River Cottage, Series 1, Episode 6, um, yeah, uh, while I was thinking about... Um, oh, it's here, by the way, on page 25. Oh, if you want thank to you. Yeah, I'm going to have another look at... What did I write about <laughs> this? Um, I can't remember whether it was before or after... This, I, this kind of like trope of tragedy had first appeared to me. Um, but I mean, I don't, yeah, it's a, it's a kind of running, running gag in some of the, these kind of ethical meat um, narratives. But um, that are kind of, yeah, this first chapter, it deals with kind of more like the cosmic relationship that, that, that we believe we, you know, some humans believe we have with animals. Yeah, later in the book, we get to kind of more, more the sort of production side and the consumption side. But here we're talking about the more kind of this idea of a very primordial relationship with meat. And often the way that that is portrayed is by invoking these ideas of tragedy, which have kind of baked into them um, lots of ideas around inevitability, fate, the ancient, and this kind of like narrative arc that can be very sentimental, um, or at least in the way that it is kind of reproduced in contemporary culture, um, about how the sort of drama, this kind of violent drama that takes place between humans and animals plays out. So in, um, yeah, in, in River Cottage, there is this scene in which Hugh is very sadly having to take his pigs to slaughter. Um, and he's really sad about it. And, you know, I believe him. He is sad about it. Um, and, you know, he, he does, you know, he does love these pigs. He's looked after them. Um, but the way he represents it as if, is as if this kind of relationship he has, like, forged as, you know, while he's playing this role, this isn't another urban, urban middle, maybe upper class individual has, like, staged himself as a kind of peasant-ish small holder um, who's like gone to Dorset and is like living this hard life as a farmer. It's very tongue in cheek, but like the, the ideological work that it's doing, it's doing still kind of stands. Anyway, he's got to take his pigs to slaughter uh, and he has to find a way of, of, you know, making this as painless as possible. But the way he stages it, there are these really interesting parallels with the way that, um, you know, in this play, um, I, I think it's Agamemnon, but there are lots of different versions where the queen, Clytemnestra, who's about to kill her husband because he's treated their daughter actually funnily like, a, like an animal and kill, had her sacrificed. She's like leading him into the house to slaughter him and she like rolls out this red carpet and tempts him in and Hugh, is, he has to like create this bridge to get the pigs from like the lovely little sort of pen that he'd built for them onto into the van where he's going to take them away and he like doesn't give them any food in the morning and then lures them down this red carpet with pig nuts and it's this really really yeah. sad scene um but it's yeah it's all staged like that like it's this kind of like it's been choreographed by the gods you know like it's like this kind of yeah tragic inevitable drama and it's all just about how you do it not about what's going to happen 
then all the slaughter takes place off, off stage, mm. off screen. It's this kind of bloodless killing. And then ultimately, like Clytemnestra kills her husband in the bath, the next thing we see is basically like him and his like butcher pal, like elbow deep in the bath <laughs> with all this meat. Yeah. Just like dealing with that. Yeah. Anyway, um, you can uh, you can read more about of the sort of intellectualization of the parallels between you know what this tragic image is doing. But just to give you a taster, that's yeah, yeah, yeah it's such a potent image, like huge red carpet, Clytemnestra's mm. red carpet. It's um, mm. it's so potent. Um, so the book is called Meet Love, mm. and this is a concept that you sort of develop in the book and kind of carries us through the book. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about what you mean by meet love and the meet lover's gaze and. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's kind of something, yeah, meet love. I, I use this to refer to, as a just kind of an abbreviated phrase, to refer to this kind of um, attitude of, um, yeah, lovingly, lovingly produced and lovingly eaten meat. Um, and, you know, the kind of, I suppose it, it, it like shows up in many different ways. It shows up in kind of certain, certain styles of, of farming um, in a kind of, in a sort of small scale and loving way, but then it also, you know, then translates into a certain style of eating, often as a kind of rarefied hobby if, if, with this kind of great appreciation for animal life. Um, I'm talking very much about a kind of um, bourgeois sensibility around a kind of very niche market in expensive ethical meat, not um, the kind of, I suppose, you know, peasant or indigenous imaginary that it's that it's kind of appropriating or yeah. drawing on. And I guess what, how the term is useful is that it refers to something that seems so kind of it's very recognizable, it's very instantly evocative, but it covers up, it sort of mystifies a lot of the class relations and the kind of like actual social processes that have gone into the very making of meat, like in general. Yeah, um, yeah it's kind of like papers over a lot, of, um, a lot of political processes in a kind of vague ethic vibe feeling. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you t and I think that it plays in with what you're, what you go on to kind of talk about in the in the harmony chapter, which follows on from the tragedy chapter, where we have Hughes' tragic slaying. Mm -hmm. um, mm. There's a sort of this image about harmony um, between the meat eater and the animal, mm -hmm. and also the people that you critically talk about, including King Charles, our king. Uh, <laughs> seeing a kind of social harmony in a kind of feudal fantasy. Yeah. I feel like there's a feudal fantasy that you talk about and the, the notion of the peasant and, uh, and the feudal lord and somehow the relationship between the person uh, raising the meat and the meat. Um, yeah. Yeah, so, and you, you talk about various different myths that they draw on to kind mm. of uh, legitimize or post-rationalize uh, the this kind of feudal idea. Mm. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about, about that. Yeah, like there's this, and it, it seems to be a really convincing mythology. Like there's a guy who wrote an entire book um, called The Meat Paradox 
um, which um, kind of waxes lyrical about um, the then Prince Charles's um, gardens that he has at one of his estates, um, which is this kind of elaborate garden based on kind of Islamic aesthetic principles of harmony that is supposed to represent the way that he does all of his organic farming. And the guy who is um, writing this, who's very enraptured by this um, story, literally refers to how this kind of image of harmony unites. And like, I'm literally not kidding, prince and peasant in like a shared, uh, um, you know, cosmic uh, system, ethic, whatever. Um, as if, you know, it yeah, wasn't actually, to... yeah, what should I say? Yeah, Sorry. Uh, you'd be forgiven for struggling to swallow the idea that what connects peasant and prince is, as Percival puts it, a shared ecological ethic rather than a relationship of total domination. Yet leaving aside the feudal and monarchical mincing of words, we are left with an appealing vision. Thank you. Um, yeah, um, and I mean, there's loads of different yeah, there are loads of different kind of uh, mythologies that get drawn on in kind of constructing this idea of a harmonious balance um, where, you know, animals give, we, uh, we, we take from animals, they take something from us, I guess. <laughs> like, um, and um, yes, there's lots of stuff to do with, again, invoking the ancients, invoking Pythagoras, invoking kind of like, um, so the golden ratio and da da da. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, sort of, but it, but yeah. really, like I guess the central idea is is to do with symbiosis and this kind of symbiotic relationship between humans and animals, um, which you know a lot of it kind of makes sense to some degree. Like there are certain aspects of this kind of these principles of organic farming which do make sense from an ecological perspective. I guess like what gets mystified is like you know, for example, like, sure, yeah, maybe like animals grazing and like pooping on the, the fields does, you know, it helps with kind of fertilization and there's certain cyclical processes that are um, helpful, but does that necessarily entail that we then have to help ourselves to their flesh? Like, uh, not necessarily, like, mm. um, and I'm not saying like, yeah, this book isn't really about giving like the the definitive, like this is what we should do, but it's more about raising the kinds of like, where, why do we make this assumption that this is how it has to be? And I was um, interested in as well, so you talk about two um, like Instagram celebrity farmers. Mm. Um, one is a shepherdess mm. and the other guy whose name escapes me. But it's interesting that every, Every one of these people is obviously a landowner. Mm. The two Instagram celebrities were bought land by their parents. Mm. Right? They call themselves first generation farmers or something like that. Yeah, it's such a weird, it's so, like, I'm really glad you laugh at that because it literally did make my jaw drop when I first read it. I was like, is this how it, anyway. Yeah, no, no, carry on. No, exactly. And, um, and then obviously, you know, King Charles owns a lot of land and it's this sort of, you know, this romantic, re-enshrining of, of, of feudal, uh, you know, the, the benevolent uh, landowner effectively. Yeah. And it's a, a sort of strange circling back to the sort of, sort of social naturalness of these class relations and relations to land ownership yeah. and the kind of expropriation of everyone else 
from land who then doesn't get to eat that meat yeah because of the because of the relationship to production yeah um, yeah there's a lot of like piousness about mm. it and there's a lot of like demonization as well of factory farmers as if mm. they just simply don't understand like the right mm. way to do things yeah. rather than you know being less kind of like free from the mm. profit imperative <laughs> as kind of uh, farmers who's uh, have the yeah luxury of having a nice like plot in Dorset yeah. bought for them where they can, you know, make some money out of also like, you know, Instagram revenue and book deals and this kind of stuff as well. Exactly. And like, I think you, you bring out in various places in the book how the factory farm and the kind of, um, I don't know, modern day feudal lord <laughs> or whatever, yeah. are part of the same system, you know, that the yeah. wealth that the person has to buy this land to be a first generation farmer comes out of the fact that people have repressed wages and, and, and have to buy cheap, cheap meat. Like the, the one is dependent on the other, you know, yeah. they're part of the same system. Yeah. And I think this is kind of really where the book kind of moves towards. It starts thinking, it starts off thinking about meat and then it, it kind of like ultimately where it ends up is that, you know, it just doesn't, and this is, this is kind of the prevailing tendency is to think about this as an issue of the food system rather than an issue of our economic system more generally. Yeah. yeah. And um, this is not to say that meat is not a specific kind of, a specifically, I guess like a specific travesty that to our economic system in that in some sense kind of meat is the kind of, Obviously, meat predates capitalism, but it is like the logical extension of mm. a system that kind of like parcels out which lives are worth more than others, mm. you know, so that it can extract, you know, certain value from those deemed lesser, yeah. yada, 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 until you get, yeah. you know, killing and eating and blah, blah, blah. But um, yeah, I mean, like the issue the issue is with the economic system more broadly. Obviously, like, you can't raise the price of meat without having, uh, you know, supporting the raising of wages more generally. Mm. Like, and, you know, then then where do we end up? And then so, how, would, how would Hugh afford to buy his farm? How could he? Exactly. <laughs> if wages were higher, exactly. he, could, he just simply couldn't do it. Exactly. Um, so then, yeah, so then, then the question becomes, like, okay, how do... We, how do we broaden our, like ex extend our political horizon to something much more transformative mm. than just trying to make everybody go vegan? Um, and what actually yeah. is the role mm. of, you know, eating and our relationship with meat mm. in that politicization? Yeah. And it is, I think it is relevant, mm. but it's not relevant in the sense of like, you know, the way it often gets talked about, which is just like, you know, a boycott or voting with your fork mm. or, you know, making a public display of virtue and this kind of thing. Yeah. And one of the great things about this book is how you reveal how these structures that prop up the current meat system are around us in so many different uh, spaces, you know, economic structures, etc. but also through like wonderful close readings of literary and filmic texts like your... Um, which I haven't, and I probably could never watch the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, <laughs> But you know, the way that you talk about the uh, sh the closed meat factory in that, and the, yeah. and the workers, and the and, yeah. and what's the the process of dehumanisation that they have experienced, um, participating in that labour, um, yeah.
What was the question? <laughs> oh, did I ask you a question? No, I, I just, no, yeah, just, I, just I think I was just saying that. that it was great. Oh, but, um, thank the, you. The, the, yeah, I guess just how... I watched the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, so you didn't have to. Yeah, exactly. Um, I was wondering, if you, would you like to read a bit from the, the, the beauty section? Yeah, um, yeah. Um, um, to, sure. To, that is actually that chapter, isn't it? Yeah, I think um, it's in that, yeah. But we won't get there, so don't worry, everyone. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we have, we have come to consumption by this, this point of the book. Okay. If the beauty in the eye of a beholder tells us something about that beholder's milieu, what does it say about mine that for most of my adult life, I seem to have been aware of a fashion for perceiving beauty in slurping marrow from the shin of a baby cow? One is encouraged to scrape the marrow from its bobbling chimney of bone and spread it on sourdough toast. It is served with parsley salad at London's St. John restaurant. And according to Anthony Bourdain in 2002, if you'd eaten bone marrow anywhere, it was probably because they did it first. That the trend for bone marrow in middle-class London has been visually led is surprising for a number of reasons. For one, it departs from prior continental aesthetics in gourmet culture. The razor clean edges of fillets and steaks perched precisely on Dauphinois foundations. For another, the men whose slurping we are shown as exemplars of taste have a tendency for being unbearable. On his earliest televised trip to St. John to spread the good word about offal, Bourdain was keen to establish his kinship with chef proprietor Fergus Henderson. The men bond over a shared identity, being, quote, all about the innards. These are often, they explain, the tastiest animal parts. In the adjacent Smithfield meat market, as they gaze upon the bunting of a cow's conjoined interior organs, Bourdain compares the snotty red mass to an itchy and scratchy animation. You know, where they yank Scratchy's guts out. It's all good, man, the gastronome reflects with an air of great profundity. This, he remarks, is it. In 2016, we find Bourdain to be still on a similar hype this time appearing over a plate of the fatty bone tissue alongside critic and studied bon viveur Jay Rayner. At this moment of review for the marrow, quote, one of the most influential dishes of the last 20 years, unquote, the men remark on its remarkable aesthetic legacy in the world of food. They claim to have found in the calves' jellied innards a, quote, suspension of logic and reason, one that would seem to facilitate a higher disposition to that which has the masses eating unimaginative cuts of beef. A similar position is taken by self-described professional carnivore Nick Solares, who on Eater's video series The Meat Show takes a trip to St. John, an establishment without which he doesn't believe his career would ever have existed. What's remarkable about Marrow for Solares is that it feels so limitless in its boundaries. He too is enamored of Henderson, one of the seminal meat masters on earth. As they point their bellies toward one another to raise a self-congratulatory glass, we are reminded of the beauty in understanding how to extract the most flavor from the humblest animal parts, to find in the sphere of the limitless an aesthetic of balance and constraint. The philosophy behind St. John and countless ventures in its wake is that of nose to tail eating a supposedly British tradition that by the 2010s had swept much of foodie America. In a world where the use of animals is assumed to be a right bestowed on all humans, what nose to tail means for Henderson, the man who supposedly coined it, is the, quote, thrifty rural British tradition, end quote, of using every part of the animal. 
Thrift, it seems, can be as much a sensibility as an economic practice. While suggesting it would be disingenuous to the animal not to eat it all up, it seems doubtful that the prime motivation of the regular at St. John should be thrift or a restrained relationship with meat. A single plate of ham will cost you £29, an entire pig 700 It is seemingly more the aesthetic stakes of the nose-to-tail ethos that constitute its raison d'etre. According to its own cookbook, St. John's exhilarating dishes, built on the inner organs of beasts and fowl, strive towards that holy grail of cultural capital that combines, quote, high sophistication with peasant roughness. Yet while this aesthetic ought to be reasonably transparent in its purpose as marketing matter, it has managed to maintain in 20 years a remarkably virtuous resonance. Before Rayner and Bourdain move in on a plate of pig's head and potato pie, a dish which we are told exemplifies everything Bourdain believes in, we are shown the head intact, another, itself another signature dish of St. John's. On receiving the result, Rayner sees fit to treat the viewer to a disquisition on Britain's greatness. As this human sticks his fork into the animal, he remarks on the island's historic tolerance for the other. Lamenting his Brexit-fueled suspicion of decline in this regard, he nevertheless praises the country's superior democratic tradition. It is likely that wealthy diners whose diets and careers have been built around meat will struggle to truly connect with the idea of treating the other as precious. This likelihood is reflected in the vagueness with which the virtues of nose-to-tell dining are so often described. In Bourdain's earlier televised visit to St. John, a pig's head and tail are set jiggling before him, braised with onions and split along the jaw to resemble a gaping crocodile. The host states simply that this is what food used to be about. This is a chef who understands, he says, never daring to articulate what. This is a guy who took a stand, he adds, without elaborating further. St. John represents what I think meat, cooking and eating should be, declares Solares. Of course, he needn't say why. The point is that, regardless of our means or whether the killing was necessary in the first place, we are able to rest assured that we have treated the meat before us in the manner of a beautiful thing, always to be savoured, as Fernley Whittingstall puts it in his Ethical Meat Manifesto, never to be squandered, never to be simply lived on in the manner of the actual peasant. Thanks. Um, that was wonderful. Thank you so much. I think we might open to a few questions now. I think the time the time is nigh. I just had a nod. Um, so, or, or comments also appreciated. You know, sometimes formulating a question is a challenge. So, you know, bringing uh, bringing thoughts into the room is also is also welcome. Yeah, very very much welcome comments as well <laughs> as questions. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Yeah, I... Was reading and rereading your piece on Gorilla Milk before this, oh. and uh, I really loved that during the pandemic from, from the New York Times magazine. It's really interesting because 
You talk about how that film shows the violence of motherhood, but also only treats the subject Lisel as a mother and that thus she deserves our love because she's beautiful mama. Mm. And I think that was like super interesting. And obviously you're continuing some of the thinking about how our relationships with animals tells a lot about just general human behavior and larger systems and our politics. And I wondered where that interest began because I love that the gorilla milk piece so much. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I have. Oh, sorry. Do I need? No, you got a mic. Oh, yeah, I've got a mic. <laughs> I have had one the whole time. Um, yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, I hadn't actually connected these two pieces. Um, I think that interestingly, my, you know, I was I wasn't an, an, a self-described animal lover at all, uh, you know, in the past at all. And I think it is actually interesting how, and I kind of touch on this more towards the end of the book, but how just by stealth stopping eating meat, having, you know, had some questions about meat, eat, meat consumption beforehand, but never really acted on them, having actually been kind of thoroughly depoliticized around meat while being politicized in other areas was this kind of really interesting experience in how it opened up my kind of, I want to say political imagination, but just also my openness to thinking about animals. And, you know, I don't, I'm very wary of drawing, you know, direct comparisons between our relationship as humans, human society with animals. Um, but <laughs> they, there is certainly a kind of like shared system of power that connects those two, I guess, like societies, mm. as it were. Um, and yeah, for me, that that kind of interest, yeah, comes through this process of kind of like beha behaving towards them in a different way. And it, it, yeah, it's interesting how that those kind of, um, yeah, those more visceral behaviors can politicize you in ways that kind of the intellectual discourse maybe like mm. wasn't quite, you know, developed enough in as I encountered it to make that happen, yeah. Yeah, I think the way you talk about desire and love uh, and in a way provocatively talking about human relations and emotions really helps. Because yeah, all the language that these people are using, like the, what we were just reading, like uh, Anthony Bourdain stuff like tolerance and like love and you know, those things mm. come from a, a human space of discourse. So then it's, yeah. we, but we apply them to meet. So it's such a useful tool that you develop here. Yeah, mm. sorry. Great no, question. Thanks. Um, yeah, great. I don't know if I say two things. I don't want to take time. <laughs> okay. But the, the first thing was just I was wondering whether um, that person that you were seeing who was vegan or still is vegan, whether or not they were helpful and constructive in the kind of discussions of this kind of subject. Because I think you said that it was something that you did out of practice that yeah. you kind of really engaged with on an intellectual basis just because obviously the more that you think about this kind of stuff which is so ideologically driven and kind of gets down to like our belief about how we have a right to exist and like what our existence is fueled off of you realize that even though lots of people are moving towards like alternative ways of engaging with like animals and that kind of food system yeah. it's actually quite lonely at the same time yeah. um and the second thing is more facetiously i wonder and i haven't seen this which i'm very grateful for are those instagram farmers hot because <laughs> there is an actual point i was just thinking that i i would I suspect, knowing very little about this, that they kind of are like young and aesthetically palatable, yeah. Because that is often necessary when, like, I think once you enter a leisure society, something that's really 
people tend to desire is that things look nice, whatever they are, yeah. and that it's easier to pair and to sell things mm. when something is emotionally distressing or ugly or, or conflicted and have something beautiful to look at when it's being delivered to us. And so in that situation, you know, these people probably hadn't would have an easier time if, you know, they'd look good on Instagram, irrespective of what it is that they've chosen to do. Yes. Um, so, yeah. Thank you. Great questions. Um, still, still with the vegan. Um, someone had to be. Um, not here, though, at Glastonbury. Um, uh, yeah. Um, the other, that is an interesting question. Like, I think that, yes, like, I, I guess, like, my ideas develop, have developed in conversation with him. But yeah, also was not a process of indoctrination. <laughs> um, in, in a good, you know, I would have loved it if it was. It would have been much easier to write this book. Um, but yeah, I think that you know these things are very these things are complicated and nebulous, and there's many things going on. And I, I think that this was kind of like, you know, I say somewhere in the book that that it was kind of like chewed on over a long time in conversation with other people, friends. Um, eating and so on um, and yeah I, I do think that actually like yeah it, I, I relate to what you say about it being quite a lonely process especially if you are very self-conscious of the kind of class issues around meat eating because it can be very embarrassing to be you know um, eschewing meat but then of course like there is I suppose you just have to set your sights a bit further and think about like, okay, and what kind of society would that no longer be the case? Because it wouldn't be that like, you know, this wouldn't be, the refusal of meat wouldn't be seen as a refusal or a proscription because meat wouldn't be normalized. Like it wouldn't be the negative. Um, so that's kind of a digression. Um, yes, the Instagram farmers are not my type, but objectively hot. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and that is a big part of it. And like, it's a big part of kind of spinning that narrative of, of love. There's a sort of like, you know, the, the kind of love that I'm talking about in the book is very different from the kind of erotic or sexualize, sexualization of meat that is described, for example, in like a feminist text, like the sexual politics of meat. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that like we are a lot more uncomfortable at this moment of climate catastrophe and, you know, having seen the very worst of factory farming, you know, about um, the kind of like violence involved in that kind of imagery. So this is much more of a romanticized yeah. image of love. And yeah, the shepherdess like, reminds me of like 19th century That's romantic so, literature, so you know, against the backdrop of, you know, rapid industrialization, mm. you know, mm. It's very she's cottage really like, It's all the very cottage She's got amazing, I mean, she's got amazing on the podcast, hair. Rebecca yeah. is shaking out her hair. <laughs> um, but the, um, the like, um, yeah, yeah, the, the, the images particularly of this one male Instagram farmer who's like, you know, photographed in Tatler and all of this kind of shit. Like, what's, I don't know if I'm, yeah, anyway. Um, he, um, there's a lot of like really cute pictures of him like feeding little lambs with bottles like he's their mom and like it's all very sweet and like yeah people love it. Anyone here? The my previous my previous question has just been answered, which oh. was that I'd been wondering, Amber, you'd said towards the beginning of your talk about feeling as guilty about giving up meat as of eating it. Mm. And I think when you've talked about the 
class issues. Mm. Um, you've kind of explained that. So I'm going to go to my second question, which is what has the, go- the golden ratio got to do with meat? You mentioned that as yeah. well. Um, so I, I am going to have to eventually, I'm going to have to properly for a discussion of this refer you to, <laughs> to the chapter on harmony. But there are, I don't actually remember if I talk specifically about the golden ratio, but definitely there are kind of um, sort of, uh, what do you call them? Where, the, where, where patterns recur in nature. Um, yeah, I don't, yeah. I just mean kind of more generally. Um, there's a lot of invocation of these kinds of patterns that occur in nature as kind of universal or eternal. Um, oh, do you mention the golden ratio? Oh, sorry, do I? What do I say here? Yeah. I, sorry, this is, yeah, I find it very hard to remember what Prince Charles um, says. Um, sacred geometry, this is what I'm talking about, yeah repeats itself in countless artistic wonders, connecting us with nature's harmonic balance. So Charles's book on harmony is full of images of the golden ratio in many organic forms. Yeah, he talks about Botticelli's Primavera and the birth of Venus, um, which is obviously about love. And yeah, so there's this connection between this kind of universal love, universal patterns, universalized, uh, naturalized ways of farming, um, that all kind of get bound together in this mush, aesthetic mush. Mm. Um, I was quoting King Charles, sorry. Sorry, thanks, Jenny. <laughs> Should we make that final question? Sure. Or, 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 unless there's more? No, I don't know. My point was also about when you were kind of discussing the guiltiness surrounding giving up meat as well as engaging and eating meat. Mm. I think you've kind of touched upon the sexual politics of meat and more kind of feminist arguments that intersect with this discussion. Um, I think sometimes, particularly as a woman or someone who's female presenting, kind of taking up that space to say, I'm actually vegetarian or I'm vegan and I'm not eating meat and kind of being confident enough in that. I know previously I've been kind of like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can eat, but that's fine, that's fine. And quite apologetic for it. Um, Obviously hearing your discussion this is a far more kind of romanticized version than kind of talking about the innate desire and quite patriarchal animalistic desire that people have to consume meat Um, but I wondered if you could speak a bit to how feminism intersects with this argument in that way that especially when you're talking about kind of the guiltiness of even having this discussion when there are people like you've mentioned, where it be Hugh or Jay Rayner, that mm. quite confidently make their argument mm. um, and where that all fits in. Yeah, yeah, thanks. I think there's two different things going on, like one of them being to do with, um, yeah, and, you know, there are many different kinds of feminism, obviously, like there are many feminist arguments that are made for meat-eating, you know, in the context of, like, um, ongoing prescriptions on female, human female pleasure, you know, women being told what they can and can't eat and meat eating, you know, being a kind of rebellion against that, I guess, like, um, you know, to some extent, like, that's all well and good. But then to another extent, if we're going to think of like feminism in terms of a sort of class analysis, like what would it mean to extend that class analysis to other forms of life and that. And, you know, also like, you know, 
to, to think about the workers involved in, in making meat, you know, th th those include women too. But like, yeah, there's a lot in, there's, or there's like a, there's a bit in this book about um, the kind of like a, a more kind of socialist feminist case for, um, you know, rethinking our relationship with animals in terms of what goes on in um, animal husbandry um, and how, and, and I guess this kind of like veers more towards the kind of, um, you know, thinking not just about meat, but also like, um, you know, thinking about milk and how female animals' reproductive labor is exploited for our kind of pleasure and profit as well. Um, and yeah, again, not to draw kind of a, an equivalence between the ways that, that, you know, female humans are kind of treated in in, a, in the context of sexual violence with how animals are treated, but there's definitely a shared kind of system of, of oppression that, um, that unites them um, and that, you know, perhaps we could extend that feminist imaginary um, and see where that takes us. Yeah. I think that's quite um, a nice way to wrap things up with the open look to a future in that in that critical future. Um, <laughs> so if we'd all like to um, give a huge round of applause. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.